Good. Glad to hear it. Well, as uh, Ed mentioned, I'm Pastor Justin, and I'll be doing uh, some time in the Word with you today. So if you don't mind turning your Bibles to First or Second Chronicles chapter 29, that's where we're going to begin this morning. So just to give you a little background on what we're uh, discussing this morning, we're going to talk about leadership in difficult times. Um, many times in our country we've been challenged, many times in our faith uh, we've been challenged, and God's people are no stranger to difficulty. They've, they've borne uh, the suffering of the world since the beginning of time, and so uh, the, the things that we face today are, are different in the challenge, but uh, the one thing remains constant, that God is good and He remains with His people, and we, as long as we stay with Him, we don't have anything to fear. So this morning we're going to talk about leadership in difficult times in 2 Chronicles chapter 29. So if you can turn there with me, uh, we'll begin to talk about a guy named Hezekiah. There was uh, 20 kings in the divided kingdom stage in the scripture. In the Old Testament you have a united kingdom stage, and that was during the time of Saul, David, and Solomon. Then after Solomon there was a civil war that ensued in the nation of Israel, and the country divided into two, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. We just sang about the southern kingdom when Dana was singing about the Lion of Judah. Judah was what they referred to as the southern kingdom. So it's very rarely referred to as the southern kingdom in the scriptures. It's mostly referred to as Judah. So the Lion of Judah being Jesus, being Yahweh, being God, the Trinity, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, um, that being who they relied upon, who they looked to, Hezekiah was the greatest king in the divided kingdom stage. So out of the 20 divided kingdom kings, Hezekiah stood out as the greatest of all the divided kingdom kings. So if you think about David, Solomon as being the greatest kings of Israel when everything was together and the nation was united, Hezekiah was that for the second stage as a divided kingdom. And so a lot of the things that Hezekiah um, was... Uh, involved with were not his own making. He kind of accepted, as a 25-year-old man, he accepted the rule from his father Ahaz. His father Ahaz was uh, a wicked man who was not godly at all, and uh, he worshipped Assyrian gods and sacrificed one of his sons, kind of his most notable achievement in the scripture, sacrificed one of, one of his sons to the Assyrian gods. So I want you to imagine if you were raised in this man's home and you were a child um, imagine the fear that Hezekiah was raised with to not even know, hey, dad may get a wild hair one day and decide that, that, that there needs to be a sacrifice for whatever and I'm gone. You know, that's it. So imagine being in that environment your whole life and having to, to deal with that and wake up every morning and just kind of have that, that as a father and somebody who you look up to, not really. But the one thing that the one redeemable quality that Hezekiah had in his family was his grandfather was a godly man and believed in God and worshiped God. And so he did have someone. And it's funny, if you go through history, how many times the grandfather was a significant spiritual influence in the life of a grandson. And uh, I know grandmothers the same way in the New Testament. You know, you have grandmother Eunice and in Timothy's life, and there was a there's a there's a significant impact that grandparents have in the life of their grandchildren, and it's, it is something that is told through the entire story of the Scripture, and Hezekiah is no different. 
His grandparents were incredibly influential in his life and his faith and his spiritual development. And so we come to this point in 2 Chronicles 29 in verse 1. And if you don't mind, I'm going to pray and then we'll read the passage of Scripture together. So if you don't mind praying with me out loud, please, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Jesus, please speak to my heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hezekiah in in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 1, it says, Hezekiah was 25 when he began to reign as king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. In verse 3, skip down, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the Lord's house and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the eastern public square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, consecrate yourselves And consecrate the temple of the Lord God of your ancestors. Remove everything detestable from the holy place. Now in this divided kingdom stage, um, the faithful, I'm sure, had moments where they looked back into the past and they cherished the time when they were all united and they were all together and they had these great victories and they crossed the Red Sea and they defeated the Egyptian army and they defeated uh, the, uh, the, the soldiers of the countries that came, that when they came into the promised land, they had victory over them. And I'm sure they looked back on that time and looked at their history and were very proud of that. But one, there was a point that Hezekiah wanted to make as a newly, um, newly anointed king. And he did it, it says in the scriptures, in the first month... Uh, in the first, uh, let's see, in the, in the first, in the first, uh, in verse 3, it says, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the temple. He wanted to make a point about what he was going to be about as king. And we're in, a, we're in a presidential election year, so we have a lot of campaigning, we have a lot of things going on, but if you'll notice, anytime there's a, a new president elected or a second term of an, exi- of a, an incumbent president, the first hundred days of their term is very important, and the media makes a big deal about what they're going to do in the first 100 days, and that, that really, to us, defines what their priorities will be, what their direction is going to be, and so you kind of get an idea of where they're going to be as a leader from the first 100 days. This passage of Scripture in verse 3 tells you about where Hezekiah's mind was focused. In the first year, in the first month, it says he ran to the house of God. And so in difficult times, the first thing I want you to remember is that when we get faced with challenges, difficult things come into our way, the first thing that we need to do is remember that God is our refuge and strength in time of trouble. That when we get to a place of struggle and and persecution or somebody rises up against us, that it is not our first response to to muster the army and get ready for war. Our first response is to humble ourselves and move into the presence of God. And that's exactly what Hezekiah did as a newly anointed king. He ran to the Lord. He ran to God and he began to prioritize a relationship with God. And that is something as well that if you look in the Old Testament or you look in the New Testament, it's consistent. Um, we know that the sacrifices changed. We know that the, the object of their faith changed um, from, from being a, a, a sacrificial faith to a faith that was focused on Jesus and his sacrifice. So those things changed. But the relationship with God never changed from the Old Testament to the New what they were seeking a person. They were seeking God himself, not a thing. 
But many times when you see Israel, the nation, veer away from God, they begin to focus on the temporal. They begin to focus on the things of this world. They begin to look at idols or systems or kings. You remember when they got a king for the first time, it was their request for a king, not God's request for a king that brought them Saul. It was not their, it was not God's idea, it was their idea, and it ended up being a bad idea because as we mentioned, three of the most godly kings in Israel, there's not a whole lot more, okay? Most of the kings were not good. They were not godly men. They they took the country in bad direction and um, didn't listen to the voice of God. And so Hezekiah wanted the people to look up. And so if you read another account of the story where he goes into the temple in 2 Kings 18, verse 4, you'll read a story where he brings the Levites in and and it's got one little piece of information that this story doesn't talk about. And when he went into the temple, he brings the Levites in the temple and he takes down the brazen serpent. The brazen serpent was an object that God had raised up in a time of tr- another time of trouble that Israel was going through where they were being killed by these poisonous snakes. And so God said, I want you to take a, a serpent and put it on a pole, a, brazen, a brass pole, and I want you to raise it up. And as the people look at it and believe God, they will be healed. And if you look on an ambulance as it passes by in Bowling Green, Kentucky today in 2020, you'll see a picture of a, brazen, of a, of a serpent around a pole, which, symbol, which is a throwback to the nation of Israel, which is a symbol of healing and restoration. But he took the brazen serpent, it says in 2 Kings 18, and he smashed it into a million pieces in front of the Levites. So he took this cherished possession of the, of the temple, that had been a symbol of God's salvation and healing to his people, and he destroyed it. Why? I bet, I can't tell you exactly because it doesn't give you the backstory, but if I had to guess, what I would tell you is he was trying to get them to look up. Because what they had done as a people is they had taken their eyes off God and the relationship they had with him, and they had begun to put their eyes upon things of this world things that they could touch and see and worship. And they had made the brazen serpent, it says in 2 Kings, an an idol. And they began to sacrifice to it. And so even things in the church can become objects of worship if we're not careful. Our hearts are deceitful. They're wicked. And over time, we begin to, to draw and be distracted from a relationship with God to the things of this world because sometimes it's easier and more predictable to look at the things of this world than it is to look up and see God. Because if you'll notice the narrative of God's story through time, it begins in a garden. He, he, moves, God's, he moves his people out of the garden. He restores his people through sacrifices. He moves them into a period where they're just kind of wandering around in the wilderness as a, as a people in Abraham's family. And then you have them moving into a time of famine where they go into Egypt. Now all of a sudden they're in bondage and they get rescued from Egypt. And all along the time that they're moving back into his inheritance, they're faced with crisis after crisis after crisis. And every time the salvation or the solution or the healing or whatever it is that brings them back into a place of peace is different. At one point, you have an animal sacrifice in the Garden of Eden to restore them into a right relationship with God. Then you have, um, then you have God's provision through Egypt, uh, through a famine, through all of Abraham's struggles. You have God's provision through the wilderness when they went to the, the to, to, they crossed the Red Sea, when they went to 
um, the new land, when they inherited the, the promise that God had given, given for them, you see God de- defeating cities, pulling down walls. You see him establishing his temple, building the ark. Now all of a sudden they're having victories through the ark. Um, they begin to worship the ark, so they get rid of that. Where's the ark? Nobody knows. Why? Because it's not about the ark. Where's the brazen serpent? It's destroyed. Why? Because it's not about the brazen serpent. Why, why do we not see burn, why don't we pray to burning bushes anymore? Because God's doing something new today. So we're not seeking a thing that is temporal and is part of this world. We're seeking something that's above that. We're seeking a person. We're seeking a being that, is, that, that we worship. And that, that being, that God, that trinity of, of, of who we worship is a creator. And what I mean by that, he's a creator means he doesn't like to do the same thing over and over. And that's part of his, his blessing to us to not do things the same way more than once. But what do we like to do? I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a creature of habit. I like my schedules. I like to do the same, the same things at the same time. You know, and if I get outside of my schedule, like I just lose it. Like I forget stuff. I can't remember what's going on. Like if I get pushed outside of my comfort zone sometimes, I like comp- I, I, sometimes things fall off the plate I forget stuff. I don't show up where I'm supposed to show. So that, that routine is a safety. It's something I run to is a safety net. It keeps me together. It keeps me moving. And Hezekiah destroyed part of that safety net when he destroyed the brazen serpent. Because they had made an altar. They had made a god of it and made an altar. And they called it Nehushtan. Is what they named the brazen serpent. And uh, what that means, that word um, means the great serpent. So it took on, it, it changed from being an object of worship to God to say, look what God did. You remember that? Man, he was awesome. That was a great thing that he did. And over time, it began to change and become something that was actually a different kind of deal, where it was almost worshiping the enemy. And so he destroyed this because he wanted the people to draw close to, to God and not an object. So as we draw close to him, we can do that through uh, consecration, as he told the Levites, to bring ourselves into alignment with God. And what he meant by that was clean out the temple, read the Word of God, get in the Word, figure out what God wants to do, and align ourselves with that Word. Bring ourselves into alignment with Him. And so reading has got to be a part of our daily uh, life as a believer. Because it's our, it's our compass, it's our direction. You know, in, in, uh, in our, my military time, I'm in the infantry, so we do a lot of time walking, we do a lot of walking around. So in the woods, we call it land navigation. So we get in the woods, we have a compass, we have a map, we have a destination, we have a start point, we know where we're going, we know what azimuth or degree that we're going to shoot in order to get us to that point. But the only way that you can continue to do your job as a soldier, you cannot stare at that compass 24-7. Like, you can't just walk like this Because then you're not scanning, you're not pulling security, you're not looking for the enemy, you're just staring at the compass. And so you have to to look at the compass, look at a point that's close enough to you for you to see it, and walk to that point, and then stop, look at the compass again, walk to the next point, so that you can still do your soldier job and you don't have to stand there. We're not saying that you need to have the Bible in front of you 24-7, because we can't do our job as believers if we're constantly kind of stuck in that. 
But what we can do is make a conscious, intentional effort several times during the day to spend some time in God's Word, to look down, to, to set an objective, to move to it, and then to look down again and set another one and move to that. That the Word of God is like a compass that guides our path. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. It's a compass. It directs us. It moves us into the right way, the thing that God wants us to be involved with. And so being in that Word is something that is crucial to us being able to be an acceptable servant. Romans tells us that, that in order to reject the world and embrace God, be conformed, not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the what? Word. Right? So that we can be an acceptable servant to God. We have to keep our eyes in the Word because it's our guide. It helps us know what God wants uh, for our life and what direction we need to go. As we move through the story of Hezekiah, one of the things that impresses me about Hezekiah is not necessarily that he's a perfect servant of God. Because Hezekiah was not. He was the best out of the bad kings, you know. He was the best out of that divided section of the scripture, but he was not perfect by any stretch. And if, even if you look at David and Solomon, they had many flaws. And you know, as a, as a man who's going through the, the world and makes a lot of mistakes, that gives me hope to know that God still wants to use me. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Have you ever felt like, well, I messed up, I said this, I did that, I'm not in the right spot, I made this terrible decision, and now we're kind of having to live with it, and I don't really feel like I, I'm even close to God anymore, and I don't feel like I've even got a relationship with God anymore, and it's been, you know, a month or two months or a year since I've even picked up the Word and spent time in the Word, and I really have had this moment where my family has been uh, destroyed because of decisions that I've, I've made, and my relationship with God is just not where it needs to be, and I don't know that God even wants a relationship with me. And when you look at a person like Hezekiah and you realize that not only does God want a relationship with you, but God seeks a relationship with you and he puts things in our path that actually push us towards him. And so it kind of changes the way that you look at some of the things that come up against you as a person instead of interpreting that as, oh, this is punishment and God is punishing me for these bad decisions. No, what it is, is it's an opportunity for God to remind you, you need to draw close to him. And move back, into him, move back into his presence. The second, second thing I want you to focus on this morning is that we have to commit to follow him daily. It is a commitment that we make. Being uh, in, in God's will is not an accident. You know, I hear a lot of students uh, and a lot of people say to me, uh, you know, I want, I want to know what God's will for my life is. And that's a little bit of a difficult question because God doesn't, sit and come up with a will for every single one of the billions of people that live on this earth. What God has is he has his will. And what happens is he's working in Bowling Green, Kentucky right now. He's working. He never stops. He's always working. And you know what we have to do as believers is not sit and try to figure out what is God's will for my life what we have to do as believers is look at the Word and look at our community and scan and see what God is doing and then make an adjustment in our life and move into that. We need to move into God's will and the things that He's doing in our community rather than trying to move God into ours. Does that make sense? We move to God as God pursues us and moves us closer to Him. 
And so I want you to look at verse 10. Verse 10 in this chapter says, It's in my heart now, Hezekiah speaking, to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel so his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, don't be neglected, negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to serve him, and to be his ministers and burners of incense. You know, today we don't have priests anymore. We don't have the Levites as a, as a group of priests. But what the Bible does say in the New Testament is it says that you are a priest. You possess the Spirit of God. You can speak directly to Him. You don't have to have a go-between or someone to mitigate a relationship with you and God. You, in fact, as a, as a believer and as a, a possessor of the Spirit of God, can go straight into the throne room as a believer and have a conversation with God and know Him in an intimate way. He says, make a covenant with the Lord. Every time I do a wedding, um, uh, we talk about the word covenant. Because a marriage relationship is similar to uh, uh, the relationship with God in that it's not a contract, it's a covenant. A contract says, if I pay my cell phone bill, then you will allow me to use my cell phone this month. But if I stop paying my cell phone bill, you're going to take my cell phone away. That's a contract. A covenant says that I'm going to commit to live with you and love you, and I'm going to love you whether or not you love me back. Because it's a covenant. I'm going to commit. Because some days we receive love from our spouse and some days we don't. Some days it's, it's a hard day. It's a difficult uh, part of the relationship. And some days we don't get what we need. But we still are in that relationship. And it is a closer picture to what a relationship with God is. Because our relationship with God is not dependent solely on our performance of our end. Thankfully. And everybody in here that's a sinner can say amen because thankfully it's not dependent upon our performance. Although God challenges us to walk closely with Him and He wants us to walk closely with Him and we can experience the fullness of the blessings of God in, the, in this world. I don't mean monetary blessings. I mean the presence of God, the usefulness, the usefulness of the ministry and the power of the ministry, those things. We can't experience those things unless we're walking with Him. But the great thing is that if you mess up and you have a bad day, a bad week, or a bad uh, season of life, God doesn't leave you. God doesn't forsake you. God doesn't walk away to say, well, they didn't do their part today of the contract, and so I'm going to walk away. Why? Because the covenant is not dependent upon us fulfilling our part. It's only dependent completely on Him. On him, it's a covenant. And so he says, I want to enter into a covenant with the Lord God of Israel so that he is, his fierce wrath may turn away. Now, what's involved in a covenant relationship? Humility and a lot of grace. So if we walk outside of our covenant, we're going to become to be prideful and say, I'm going to have my own way. But in order to move back into a right relationship with God, we've got to humble ourselves and repent, turn around. The last thing that I want to share with you today about this story that I think in, is, is an incredible part of his life is that when he, when he cleanses the temple, he repairs the gates, he moves God's priests back in to set up shop and, and to, to begin um, a different phase of the life of Israel, he challenges them to worship with clean hands and a pure heart. We know that the Bible tells us we cannot approach the holy mountain of God without clean hands and a pure heart. That we're not going to be able to experience the full blessings of the Holy Spirit unless we align ourselves with God's will. 
And we want to do that as often as we can, just like the compass, to look down and to make sure where we are and to make a correction. But in verse 15, he says this, They gathered their brothers together, consecrated themselves, and went according to the king's command by the words of the Lord to cleanse the Lord's temple. It says, The priests went to the entrance of the Lord's temple to cleanse it. They took out all the detestable things and found the Lord's sanctuary into the courtyard of the Lord's temple. Then the Levites received them and took them outside to the Kidron Valley, and they began to consecrate on the first day of the month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came into the vestibule of the Lord's temple, and they consecrated the Lord's temple for eight days. And on the sixteenth day of the first month, they finished. And they went inside to King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed the whole temple of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the table for the rows of the bread of the presence and all its utensils, and the utensils that the king Ahaz rejected during his reign when he became unfaithful, we have set up and consecrated, and they are in front of the altar of the Lord. So God cleansed, uh, Hezekiah cleansed the temple. He repaired the access that they had to their source of strength. And in difficult times, sometimes we can dig ourselves into holes that sometimes it's hard to see out of. But God wants to reach down to our life, to our reality, and give us hope. And that's what he does in that moment. Hezekiah brings Israel into line with God again and begins to tear down the altars, to tear down the old cherished possessions that distracted them from a relationship with God and raise up again the, 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 relate, the importance of the relationship with God to the people so that they could come back into a right relationship with him and be successful. You know, Hezekiah's father was really good at making treaties with other nations. And he would pay another nation to not invade them. He would pay another nation to, to leave them alone. And at the end of Ahaz's reign, he kind of spent all the money that Israel had. And um, so Hezekiah took over during this period of time where there wasn't a lot of choice about what they were going to do. It was either allow themselves to be taken over or trust the Lord. And Hezekiah made a great choice. He chose during this period of time in his life to trust the Lord and to raise up the relationship with God. And God blessed Hezekiah for that decision. He blessed him. You know, we have a lot of choices in our life. And whether it's a choice at your workplace to make a deal uh, that you know is not right, but it benefits you personally, or it benefits you politically, but you know the right way. You know, we're given choices every single day, and every day we have to choose to follow Jesus. We have to choose to remain in line with God's Word. God, as I said, is not going to leave us. We leave Him. Because of the way that we walk away from what we know to be right. Now, the great thing about Jesus is that we're in a covenant relationship. It's not a contract. When we leave and we walk away, He doesn't end our relationship. So we have to be re-saved again. We just move away from where he wants us to be and then suffer the consequences of that decision sometimes. But he's always good and he's always gracious and he's always ready to receive us again. But a lot of times we have decisions that we make even in this room. Sometimes whether or not uh, God, God wants us to, to be obedient to him and we choose not to be. God wants us to, to do uh, to take this chance or, or change this part of our life and we choose not to. Some of us need to grab that brazen serpent and destroy it. 
because we've erected something that's a part of this world that is opposing God and that's actually keeping us out of our right covenant with Him. So today, I just want to challenge you as you think about your life and you think about the decisions that you make. You know, the example of Hezekiah is to, to restore the temple. Restore the temple because that is the lighthouse. And in our context today, we are the temple. We don't have a temple in Jerusalem that we worship at. The Bible tells us that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and He dwells within us. And the challenge for us today to, to be a Hezekiah in this age is to look inside of ourselves and go, in what way can I make myself a better reflection of God on this earth? How can I make myself come into, gra- into, into greater alignment with who God is and what He wants for my life? How can I do that? So that other people can look and see and the gospel can be raised up. Because that's the ultimate purpose of our life is to raise up the gospel. It's not for us to get things. It's like I told the first service, you know, sometimes we get in this, in this rotation like we're playing this, this cosmic uh, game of hungry hippo and we're just trying to gather everything of this world to ourselves, right? It's like that's our whole goal in life is just to like come over, get over here, let's get, get everything we can right here. And then what do you get when you get everything? You probably learned the lesson of Solomon in Ecclesiastes And if you were to sum the whole book of Ecclesiastes up in one word, it's vanity. He says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything in this world ends, it goes away. If you're standing at the factory and you're cranking out widgets every day, all day long, and you do it for 40 years, and then you retire, and you go into retirement, guess what happens the next day? Somebody comes behind you and they keep cranking them out. So it's... We can take significance in what we do in life, not because of the products of this world that we produce, but we take significance as believers in the eternal investment we make in other people and in the relationship with God that we have and how that relationship with God affects other people. That's the only thing that lasts beyond who we are here. That's the only thing that lasts beyond the, the, the last day you crank out the widget. That's, that's what lasts beyond that is the investment that we make spiritually and in our relationship with God. And so God is here today, and He is still seeking us in a relationship. He wants to have a relationship with us. You know, in the Old Testament, they referred to the the nation of Israel as the fig tree. And even in prophecies, they talk about the fig tree being replanted. In the New Testament, it's interesting that in the book of John, which is the gospel to the church... Every, every gospel has a different audience that it's written for. John is the gospel to the church. It was written to the church of God. And in John 15, the only time in the four gospels that this, is, this story is told, in John 15, it talks about, Jesus says this, he says, I am the vine. If you look up here on these stained glass, stained glass windows, it's right here in the bottom. I am the vine. And what he's trying to say is that there is a new day that has come. Whereas the nation of Israel is no longer the fig tree. Now the fig tree is, I am the vine and you are the branches. You are the fig tree. You are the, the 
oracles of God. You are the, the people that bring God's voice into the world because of the way that you choose to live, the way that you choose to speak, the way that you choose to treat people. It speaks to them about who God is. So that's why that when we should, we should go to a restaurant, we should treat the servers well. We should treat people in our lives well because it speaks to who God is. And if we are a representation of who God is in this world, then we should treat people the way that God treats us. And that's with love and grace. We are a reflection of Him. And so let's clean the temple out and restore a right relationship with God so that He can go out into the world and actually help us lead during difficult times. Because we have a responsibility. And you hear stories every day about people, you know, mistreating people in the world because they're stressed out about corona. We have to think bigger than that as a church. We have to think bigger than that because we serve somebody who is not intimidated by germs. We need to take precautions. We need to do the right thing. But at the end of the day, God is in control. And as we trust Him and we walk with Him, let's do it in a way that reflects Him and lifts Him up. And uh, I believe God will do a great work in us if we do that. If you're in this room this morning and you're thinking, I don't even have a relationship with God, I don't know what this guy's talking about. He's talking about God and having access to Him and all that stuff. We're going to be waiting outside in the library across the hall here. And I'd love to talk to you about having a relationship with Jesus. If you're, wa- if you're watching from home and you're watching online, you can text Jesus to 270-279-1031 and somebody will contact you and, ha- and set up a time where we can talk and, and share with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But if you're in this room right now and you're thinking, I'm a believer, but there's a lot of brazen serpents that are set up in my temple. And I need to go in and clean things out. I need to go in and really make some decisions that reflect God's word and bring me in, in, in a better alignment to who he is. If that's you today, then I'd love to have prayer with you, talk with you about that. We've got pastors who'd love to serve you and be able to help you make some decisions that, that glorify God in a greater way. So would you pray with me this morning as we close? God, thank you for everything that you do to seek us out. Thank you, God, for the example of Hezekiah that in difficult times he chose uh, not to lead in a way that glorified the things of this world, but he chose to lead in a way that glorified a relationship with you. And if we're going to move forward and continue to lead and continue to carry the flag of the gospel forward, then we have to continue to lift up who you are. God, for generations... For as long as creation has existed, you have been seeking us out. You've been our refuge and our strength in times of trouble. And God, that is no different today. And so God, I just pray that we would seek you, that we would draw close to you, and that we would remove anything in our heart, just like Hebrews tells us that that sin that so easily besets us, that we would remove that so that we could walk in a closer way with you. We love you, God. We want to honor you and lift up the gospel in this world. Thank you so much for Jesus and everything he does for us.
It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand right.